This is a Federal News Network podcast. For the fifth year in a row, the number of bid protests presented for adjudication to the Government Accountability Office has dropped. In 2018, GAO heard more than 2,600 cases. Last year, only 1,600. What's going on? Well, we turn to the GAO's Associate General Counsel, Ed Goldstein. Mr. Goldstein, good to have you with us. Hey, good morning. Glad to be with you here today, Tom. Why are the numbers dropping so much? Because contracting action numbers aren't dropping at all. Are more protesters simply going to the federal courts instead of to GAO? That's one theory that uh, folks have uh, posited, but... It's not one that seems to be borne out by the numbers, at least what we've seen over the years. At the Court of Federal Claims, you've seen cases bounce around between 120, 140, 170 cases a year. And our case volume in the last five years has gone, you know, from 2,600 cases in 2018 to 1,650 odd cases uh, this past year. So you just don't see, you know, hundreds of cases going to the Court of Federal Claims. You just, at least from the statistics that we've gleaned from what's on their reports uh, on their website. Right. So it's really impossible to tell because the people that don't protest don't come around to tell you why they didn't. So it's just a number we can observe. Absolutely. You know, we, we don't know why they, they don't protest. A lot again, there are a lot of theories out there as to why the numbers have been going down. They range from debriefings and enhanced debriefings is, is one of the big theories right now. I think in the 2022 NDAA, the House Armed Services Committee actually uh, suggested that they, they've seen a correlation between enhanced debriefings, uh, the use of enhanced debriefings and, and protest numbers going down. But again, there's there's a lot of theories out there. And, um, you know, I'm not one to speculate. Sure. <laughs> we just handle the cases as we see them and, uh, you know, adjudicate the cases that are coming the door in a fair and a, in an efficient manner. And maybe the 1102 contracting officers have gotten really, really good so that everything that they do is just incontrovertible now, or at least oh, yeah. uh, all <laughs> that's, but 1600. That's uh, one, theory, one that's usually not, you know, <laughs> uh, positive, but, you know, I think You have to look at the actual numbers. You know, we're talking about numbers in the 2,600 to 1,600 range. But if you look at the numbers relative to the number of contract actions out there, protests are are, are minuscule in terms of the kinds of things that in theory, you know, you've got probably hundreds of thousands of potential awards and and modifications and and, uh, orders being issued that could be protested. And, you know, the protest numbers overall are, are just kind of kind of small. Sure. And of the cases that do get to GAO, are most of them post-award protests? That is to say, they're not protests of criteria for bids stage protests. Right. As you indicate, there's sort of two buckets of protests. We've got pre-award protests, which are challenges to the terms of the solicitation, sort of what I call the ground rules of the competition. And then you've got those post-award challenges when the agency's actually made its selection decision and gone ahead and and picked a particular vendor for the, or the contractor to perform. Now, in fact, one aspect of our report each year is to identify sort of the uh, most prevalent grounds of sustains, where we actually rule in favor of the protester. And third on the list this year is actually challenges to the to the solicitation, to the ground rules of the competition. So we don't actually have a breakdown of 
you know, where that lies in terms of percentages, but it has been a, a significant area for sustaining and actually granting a protester's challenge. All right. We're speaking with Ed Goldstein. He's Associate General Counsel at the Government Accountability Office. And looking at the summary chart here, again, 1,655 cases in the last fiscal year, and then 455 of them were sustained or denied. That is to say, GAO made merit decisions on the merits of the arguments. So what happened to the other 1,200 cases? Yeah, that's always a good question. And I think part of the story is in our chart where we talk about the effectiveness rate. Now, a lot of the cases never make a decision, and that's because they're dismissed either on procedural grounds, but a large percentage of the cases are dismissed because the agency voluntarily decides to take some sort of corrective action. And that is they see the protest, they recognize there may be some merit to the protest, and they decide to to fix it on their own without going to a full decision. We see that happening in a a large percentage of the cases. So you see what we have, that effectiveness rate in our chart, which is over half. So in over half of the cases, we're seeing between our sustains and agency taking voluntary corrective action, protests are getting some some relief and some success. Basically, you know, it's tantamount to a win. And that's kind of a better outcome for everybody because it's less friction, less time and expense for everyone involved, and less effort for GAO staff that has to sit through and hear the whole things to conclusion. Oh, absolutely. You know, corrective action is a key and vital part of our process. It's been that way for a long time. We couldn't issue a decision on 1,600 cases a year if we had to go to the full merits. It probably wouldn't be possible. So corrective action has always been a big part of our process. And again, we also use ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, where we give, rather than going to a full decision, we actually will talk with the parties and explain what the likely outcome of the case is going to be so they can take those either corrective action earlier in the process, or protests are going to decide to walk away where they realize there really is no problem here. And what do we know about these corrective actions that agencies take voluntarily so that the case never does get to fully heard and decided by GAO, but they kind of self-decide? What I'm driving at is, does that mean that they change who got the award, which could spark another protest, or do they have some other method of getting everybody out of there happy? Sure. I'm not sure at the end of the day you're always going to have somebody wins and somebody loses. So somebody's always going to be unhappy, (laughs) except in the solicitation arena where somebody's challenging the ground rules there, there's an area where there's some potential for sort of a, a win on both sides, but corrective action, just kind of like our decisions doesn't necessarily result in uh, the protester getting the contract. Really what we're looking at is the process and ensuring that the process is being followed and that the rules, applicable procurement statutes and regulations are being followed. So when an agency takes corrective action, what it's really doing is saying, hey, we, we realize that there was a problem with the process and we're going to go and make sure that we follow the process as set forth in the solicitation, as set forth in the federal acquisition regulation by statute, which could result in a different award decision or not. But again, it is another potentially opportunity. It's another look where you a protester is left with nothing, but here's a second chance. Here's a, here's an opportunity. It, it may actually result in submission of revised proposals, reopening discussions, if those weren't part of the process initially. 
And again, another chance to put your best foot forward. And the whole idea that there is a protest process built into the whole legal complex surrounding federal contracting and the fact that agencies half the time make corrective action on their own when protests are filed, even though nobody likes the idea of protests, it still speaks well of the general integrity that's possible under the system that we have here. I think it's safe to say. Do you agree? Absolutely. The protest process is really an integral part of maintaining the integrity of our procurement system. Even though the protest numbers are relatively low compared, as I've indicated, compared to the total number of procurements that are out there, contracting officers and contracting teams are always aware that there's some accountability for their decision-making and their actions. And, And that is key to keeping everyone sort of on the straight and narrow and ensuring that they're following the procedures and the process. And again, it also creates transparency, which is critical. You know, our decisions are sort of a window into that procurement arena and the procurement process and the award process, which otherwise might not be there. And again, when you, as soon as you start shedding light on something, you know, you, you can evaluate it and see it for what it is. Yeah, those decisions are pretty good reading for us nerds that like that kind of thing. <laughs> That's the first I've heard that one, a pretty good reading of bid protest decisions. They, they always seem a little dry, but, uh, you know, they're, they're important and for the parties. They also provide really important guidance to the procurement community. Well, they're no more dull than baseball rules and so forth. So if you're, <laughs> if that's what you're <laughs> I think a fan I'd of. I'd be watching the World Series and reading the bid protest decisions. But <laughs> yeah, Not a bad combo. Ed Goldstein is Associate General Counsel at the GAO. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thank you very much. Glad to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the annual protest report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Shane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is 
to solve near-term problems. I always say it's sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper sticker sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday.